meine Herren, heute sehen Sie mich Gläser abwaschen und ich mache das Bett für jeden. Und Sie geben mir einen Penny und ich bedanke mich schnell. Und Sie sehen meine Lumpen und das lumpige Hotel und Sie wissen nicht, mit wem Sie reden. Und Sie wissen nicht, mit wem Sie reden. Aber eines Tages wird ein Geschrei sein am Hafen und man fragt, was ist das für ein Geschrei? Und man wird mich lächeln sehen bei meinen Gläsern. Und man fragt, was lächelt die dabei? Und ein Schiff mit acht Segeln und mit fünfzig Kanonen wird liegen am Kai. Man sagt, gewischt deine Gläser, mein Kind, und man reicht mit dem Penny hin. Und der Penny wird genommen und das Bett wird gemacht. Es wird keiner mehr drin schlafen in dieser Nacht. Und die wissen immer noch nicht, wer ich bin. Und die wissen immer noch nicht, wer ich bin. Und in dieser Nacht wird ein Getös sein am Hafen. Und man fragt, was ist das für ein Getös? Und man wird mich stehen sehen hinterm Fenster. Und man fragt, was lächelt die so bös? Und ein Schiff mit acht Segeln und mit fünfzig Kanonen wird beschießen die Stadt. Meine Herren, da wird wohl ihr Lachen aufhören, denn die Mauern werden fallen hin. Und am dritten Tage ist die Stadt im Erdboden gleich, nur ein lumpiges Hotel wird verschont von jedem Streich. Und man fragt, wer wohnt besonderer darin? Und man fragt, wer wohnt besonderer darin? Und in dieser Nacht wird ein Geschrei um das Hotel sein und man fragt, warum wird das Hotel verschont? Und man sieht mich treten aus der Tür gegen Morgen. Und man sagt, die hat darin gewohnt. Und das Schiff mit acht Segeln und mit fünfzig Kanonen wird beflagen den Mast. Es werden kommen hundert gegen Mittag an Land und werden in den Schatten treten und fangen einen jeglichen aus jeglicher Tür und legen ihn in Ketten und bringen ihn mir und mich fragen, welchen sollen wir töten? Und mich fragen, welchen sollen wir töten? Und an diesem Mittag wird es still sein am Hafen, wenn man fragt, wer wohl sterben muss. Und da werden sie mich sagen hören, alle. Und wenn dann der Kopf fällt, sage ich, hoppla. Und das Schiff mit acht Segeln und mit fünfzig Kanonen wird entschwinden mit mir. You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, and my guest today is Sharon Rudall. Sharon's work is kind of a, a mixed bag of, um, trying to track it down, the main uh, book right now is the Emma, Emma Goldman biography, Dangerous Women, from the New Press, as well as Crystal Knight in Dan Nadell's wonderful um, follow-up to Art Out of Time, Art in Time, from Abrams Books, which came out, I guess, last year as well as a plethora of work in underground comics, including comics book and co-founding women's comics. Yes. Yes. Um, I've got a bunch of new stuff coming out whenever you're ready to let me share. Yeah. No, I've, I, I'd love to hear that. I think you have something in the Wobblies collection 
Am I right? Yeah, but the same person that put together the Wobblies, right now we're doing a quickie book about the Wisconsin uprising. I'm doing the history of teachers trying to unionize in Wisconsin. I was penciling right right before you called. And we've also got a book coming out this fall called Yiddishkeit from Abrams. Who, they're the publishers of Art and Time, mm-hmm. so they do a really nice job with like good paper and real ink and stuff. And it's um, I've got 30 pages of traditional Yiddish culture, including a graphic version of the movie Greenfields and a graphic version of the song Brother Can You Spare a Dime, which is very, very close to my heart, and I was amazed we were able to get the, the copyrights to do it. Oh, and wow. I have some pages coming out in um, Graphic Canon in the fall, which is selections of world literature done graphic novel style and I have the only Chinese entry which is actually my own translations of Tang poetry in which I try to add back in the music that you can't put into words with my pictures and my Chinese friends have told me I did a pretty good job so I'm actually (laughs) very very proud of the work that I have coming out in the near future. I think there's a couple other things too. Oh yeah, Jay Kinney's doing an anarchy anthology that has a, a new piece by me that'll come out next summer. Oh, so okay. yeah, it's like a busy I'm busier than I've been since like the seventies, which is really amazing, but I'm enjoying it while it lasts. Is the anarchy anthology is it all completely new work or is it collecting work from it's the It's gonna be all the old anarchy comics plus a bunch of new work. I really don't know how many pages that's gonna come to all together. I've got a story about Victoria Woodhull that's new, and I've got all my old anarchy stuff going to be in it, too. Awesome, because those are great anthologies. Yeah, yeah the those anarchy are great books. And again, something wonderful that had been pretty much left by the wayside and forgotten for a long time that deserves to be looked at, because every time I stumble over it and read it, I'm hysterical. They're, they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. No, it was it's really interesting. Like It's such a mixed bag of different folks and different styles and very... I know, I really like it. I, I've got I think I've got a couple of them, maybe three of them. I think there were only three, or okay. some, or maybe one or two more, but I, there wasn't very many, and it's a lot of people's really best work. There's some incredible work by Spain in it mm-hmm. that I actually ripped off for some of the backgrounds for the Emma Goldman. I mean, a lot of people had the opportunity to do stuff they couldn't do anyplace else in that, so it's, it's actually, the anthology should be really nice to see when it comes out. Political consciousness is very, very, very apparent in your work. And um, kind of going in with that, talk about the Anarchy Comics. When did you uh, really first sink into what was going on as like developing your own political consciousness? I think before it went on. <laughs> I, I actually, well, I marched with Martin Luther King when I was just like a teenager when the, the marches were still, you know, people getting beaten up and sprayed and white police locking everybody up and stuff. And I was in the first anti-nuclear demonstration, the first demonstration at the White House since the Rosenbergs were executed. Um, when Kennedy came out and gave coffee to the anti-nuke marchers. I, it's, you know, I mean, it's through the great art and, of course, things like Twilight Zone and Godzilla movies and whatever that I came to bl- Yeah, I think Godzilla movies and Twilight Zone were probably the two things that led me to my political consciousness, actually. But anyways, yeah, looking back on it, because with my kids I watched a lot of the old Twilight Zones again, and I realized that the whole breadth of my politics and social thought and everything that I thought was so original and anticipated the whole hippie cultural thing, it's actually all taken straight from Twilight Zone episodes, so for whatever that's worth. Yeah, but as I got older, I mean, I refined it a little bit. But it was more like I always thought these things, and then at some strange point in my teenage years and then later in college years, there were other people that agreed with me instead of edging away from me. So that was a a wonderful, if brief, period in my life. But I I stuck to the same ideas since they were always my ideas. I mourned the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, I know I shouldn't say that, (laughs) you know, where it'll probably be recorded, but I think communism is a beautiful idea that has not yet been realized, but it hasn't done as badly as, say, Christianity in that regard. How, what's your view on, like, present-day Cuba, like, post-Soviet fall? Yeah, um, well, I, I first, to to, to digress a little in a way that I need to to do to give Mm. background, I've always been fascinated by China, partly because you weren't allowed to go there for so long. And I finally went 12 years ago, and in between I've taught myself Mandarin and I've stayed with families there and stuff. And I've seen them change tremendously. I mean, individuals I know in one lifetime transcribing the entire art from, like, you know, seriously committed to their helping their fellow man to 
you know, some relentlessly grubbing for every consumer treat. So, you know, <laughs> I sort of, I'm a little, cons I know that Cuba's had a really hard road to hoe with, since they lost the support of the Soviet Union and they have the U.S. embargo and it's amazing that they still, you know, they have really good statistics on things like lifespan and infant mortality and literacy and women's health and stuff, which is stuff I think is way more important than how many cars people have in their garages. But they're, they're, they are trying to open up, a, they're trying to follow the Chinese model, I think, a little bit. And, uh, you know, I wish them every, every good fortune, but it's a, it's a perilous, perilous path. Mm -hmm. That's uh, all I can say, because I don't know that yeah. much. I'd love to go there. I, I have actually been toying with the idea of, you know, if I make one more trip, I really ought to uh, go through, you still have to go through Canada or go on some special cultural tour. I mean, it's still technically illegal to go, but it's opening up a lot and getting a lot easier. It still amazes me the fact that it is illegal to go to another country like that, where I could, I'm in Canada, I can just go. You can, you yeah. can, right? Just I can. Well, it amazes me that even, I mean, I worked really hard to help elect Obama thinking it would improve at least a little bit, and basically the country has continued to go to the right, and I mean, I think people here are just completely deluded about what a wonderful place they think they're living in. I think it's a third world country that's well on its way to becoming a second or third rate third world country and it's a fucking police state and I wish I'd had the whatever to get out of it a long time ago. That's my honest opinion. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um... During the 60s... Well, I mean, it really yeah. is. I, where yeah. I live in Hollywood, you know, and all the brown people go to work cleaning up after all the white people. I mean, no, it's, no, I, it's I, definitely I, just like being in Mexico or India or someplace. Yeah, no, I'm not going to I'm not gonna argue um, because I, I have my own particular uh, unique points of view of... of and, and people have commented that they always wait for at some point where I get critical of the United States. <laughs> Listeners. <laughs> uh, I, I find it frightening down there some stuff. Well, I do too, and I've lived here for 60, almost 64 years, so why didn't I get I did live in Yugoslavia for a while, by the way. I mean, well, under Tito, and it was wonderful in some ways, but I guess, you know, it's a good thing I got out before the war started and stuff, but I have always had this feeling, you know, somewhere there's a communist country where I'll feel at home. Because I don't, I don't drive, I don't have heat or air conditioning. I mean, I lead a very simple sort of left-wing Amish life that, you know, I have all these fantasies. There must be a, there is a place for me somewhere but apparently not seems to be the case. So I'll just keep drawing comics about it. And now <laughs> you have the whole story. That's just about it, really. Um, you write lots about about anarchy, but then you're talking about communism. What's the distinction for you of interest? In I had this really interesting conversation um, after the Emma book came out. This really nice woman that had written books about Emma Goldman her name Alex Wexler, Alex, Alice Wexler, she's a lovely woman, and she actually sort of, you know, set up a little talk at UCLA, and we, and I got a free Thai dinner, and I could even order a beer, and it was wonderful. Anyway, I remember telling her that working on Emma made me realize what an, how much of an anarchist I was, that I'd always thought I was a badly behaved socialist that I was a socialist that just because of my own personality problems could never do what I was told and never go along with the group, that I was just like, a, you know, a, a miscreant socialist. And I realized, hey, wait a minute, maybe I'm not a bad socialist, maybe I'm a good anarchist. So honestly, I don't really know. I don't think any of these things in practice has worked out that well, you know, uh, and, I'm a, and I'm a hippie, I'm an unreconstructed hippie. For me, hippie thought, you know, answers a lot of these questions of why is life so dull under communism, you know? I mean, that, I mean there are problems with when you try to repress people's natural desires to wear tie-dye and dance around with their clothes off that I think we addressed very well. Um, but, you know, at what point, I mean, and then we also saw, like, with, with um, Altamont and stuff, the point at which the dream fades and people start to take advantage. I, I, I don't have the answers. Since, since the economy started collapsing, I actually have this little ongoing fantasy where I sort of try to imagine if things really collapse, what would be the ideal, you know, mini-state tribe that I would evolve. And, you know, I come up against lots of dead ends. I mean, if we couldn't, like, grow coffee, you know, what point would there be to life? You know, <laughs> problems like that. What would you do about vaccines? You know, I don't have answers to all this stuff. But I don't think not having all the answers is any reason to live as badly as we live here now. Mm -hmm. To treat other people as badly as we treat them now, to be such a danger to the earth and to other people as we are now. Well, not having all the answers isn't a good enough excuse not to try to head in a better direction. And that's all, you know. I mean, that's that's my little homily for the day. But I do, <laughs> I've believed that all my life, and I, I, and I still believe it now. Let's let. 
I want to rewind a little and start getting into um, kind of where you developed artistically because you got started pretty young as a creator um, as a writer I think you were 20 when your book came out the Mary Sativa That's a simple ball. Yeah. That what we're talking about? Yeah. I re- actually wrote it to support myself in art school. I was working as a file clerk after putting in full days at school, and I had read porn books and, and like, gotten grossed out by them because there's always violence and people are mean to women and stuff. And I go, Why can't somebody write a sexy book that turns you on? And it's like a nice book about nice people having fun. Sex is fun. Why should the books about it be so nasty? So I sort of was motivated in a way almost politically to do it, but I also wanted to make some money and stop being a file clerk. Um, I, w- I went to art school. I went to Cooper Union. I, I took art classes when I was a kid at uh, Corcoran Gallery in Washington. I, I always, I remember, you know, people crowding around and watching me draw in kindergarten because I could put legs on things. I've, I've always been an artist and I've always been a left-wing person and I've always been uh, a troublemaker and uh, that's what you see is what you get. That's yeah. me. At, <laughs> at what point were you drawn to comics? I used to read the uh, East Village Other when the first underground comics were coming out. I loved Trash Man by Spain, and I liked Trina's, but I never associated that. as so, Even though I wrote and I went to art school, I never thought of it as something that I that I could do. When I moved to San Francisco after working on underground newspaper in... Uh, I worked on this, helped start this paper called Takeover in Madison, Wisconsin, right after the bombing of the Army Math Research Center, like a pretty heightened time of left-wing activity there. Mm -hmm. We wanted to start a more radical paper, and I was like just about the only art department, which was a lot of it was just paste up and drawing lines and things, but every once in a while I'd have to do a panel cartoon just to go with an article or something, or to do a post or whatever. So anyway, when I moved to San Francisco, I, I showed up at the Good Times, which was the major underground newspaper there. And uh, they originally discouraged me from drawing. They had me write a column. They liked my photographs. They encouraged me to photograph. And I became good friends with Guy Caldwell. Are you, are you familiar with his work? I've heard he's the w- name before, and I should He's a genius. He's one of the unrecognized great artists of that period that deserves to be disinterred. At that point, he was on what he called the color fast. Although he was an oil painter, he wouldn't paint until the Vietnam War ended. He went to jail to avoid fighting in Vietnam, and he was raped in jail. He was a very special person, and he's a very great artist. And I admired his work very much. It won't say that he encouraged me so much as seeing him draw comics really made me think, I want to do this. I can do this. And then somebody or other, was it Rob? Anyway, so the last guest publisher, I forget his name anymore. Oh, uh, Ron off- Turner? Ron Turner was offering $25 a page for stuff, which at the time seemed like a lot of money. I mean, I was paying like $35 a month rent and getting food stamps and $24 a page. I could support myself drawing comics. (laughs) So I started drawing comics and then Trina came right when the newspaper was about to collapse because all those things were collapsing and the whole anti-war effort was collapsing. Uh, Trina came and said she wanted to make a woman's comic and actually sort of solicited me to work on it. And the rest, you know, and that was it. And then once I started doing it, I mean, it was, I've always wanted to, I always draw, I always write, and I always want to have my drawings say something, which, of course, you know, New York Art School drawing time was to say anything. If they say anything, they laugh at you. So this was, I mean, it was, it was definitely right. It was right for me. As soon as Mm -hmm. I started doing it, it was right. It was, I was hard for me. It's difficult for me. It's still difficult for me to make all those little drawings on the blank page and make them look the way I want them to look. But it it was the medium that fit to do whatever it is, you know, that I wanted to do. Um, a couple of things to go on with that. First, kind of, what was the experience for women in underground comics at the time? I, I You don't necessarily have to give me, like, the full viewpoint unless you want to, but maybe your personalized idea on it? Well, like, okay, so to backtrack a little bit here on the whole thing, I yeah. mean, I was roommates with Trina for like five years, and Trina's whole big shtick is that she'd still be drawing comics if the guys weren't such, you know, bleeps, and she really felt that, I mean, she really felt that she was kept down and oppressed, and that they were an old boys club, and that they kept her out and everything. So, you know, giving full credence to that, I have to say for me, 
it was never a big deal. I mean, I've had far more problems, you know, for, I mean, economic problems or, you know, my drawings are too sloppy problems or people don't want stuff that's left wing problems. I, I don't think I felt so much, I didn't identify so much that my work was trying to say things about women. I always felt that general issues of, of human rights and workers' rights and, you know, family rights or whatever, I never really, although I did get involved in feminism in some ways on some levels, that, that was that was not so much an operating principle for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel in comics, I don't feel any more impressed in comics, than, maybe less than I was in other things. I mean, at that time, women weren't allowed into graduate school. Women couldn't be, become professors. Women couldn't become vets. When I left Wisconsin, I had just broken up with my first husband and I had to go to the dentist for some really serious problem. I had money. I was working as an illustrator for the university. The dentist wouldn't see me unless I gave my husband's name. He wouldn't take my own money. So I, I got my dental care and then didn't pay. I mean, I have many reasons to feel that feminism was an essential and ongoing struggle. Yeah. But to tell you the truth, in comics, it was probably less of a problem than in many other aspects of life for me. What was the choice of kind of coming together with women's comics as a, as a kind of cooperative, I don't know, is cooperative a good term? We tried to be a cooperative when we used that word. Um, well, it was fun. We had women's group then, too. I mean, it's, I, I did a comic somewhere, I don't know if you've seen it in comics book, about getting kicked out of my women's yeah, group that for was, not being I sisterly was, enough. Um, yeah. But I did enjoy all that while it lasted. I mean, you know, it's, it's nice to be with other women, and it's nice to feel that they're your sisters. And it's, I've always thought this thing about women, you know, competing with each other as women and being jealous of each other and poaching each other's lovers and stuff was, it kind of foisted on us by the power structure and that we should be more supportive of each other. So that whole aspect of it was liberating for me, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a good experience to spend a lot of more time with other women than I would have been able to otherwise. It's interesting that it's one of the longer-lasting kind of um, relics of the underground. Mm -hmm. I was kind of looking at that because um, as far as especially like time length, um, well, I think the first issue was what, 71, 72? If I'm remembering right, I can't... Well, we had different editors, and it would, like, die down for years, and then I'd get a request, would you do a story for issue number such and such? I'm not in every single issue, mm -hmm. but I think partly because of what, what you brought up, because there probably weren't as many opportunities for women to get published, um, you know, mostly people would be grateful for an opportunity to get published and come up with something. So, yeah, that was probably part of why I kept going. It's also interesting that it, it was kind of a generate, you had a bit of a generational connection to... I was looking through some of the issues, and you have, like, Roberta Gregory in there who wasn't part of that underground generation. There's some younger younger people in the yeah. later issues, though. Yeah, that's what I mean. So it's interesting that yeah. you see that connection there. It's not just these are underground women, but it's more of a, you know... I think more than anything from... I mean, early on, there was just the excitement of mm. it being the same sort of excitement as women's groups, that it was women getting together and telling their own stories at a time that that was very uncommon, that women were all enemies fighting for this uh, zero-sum pie that was guys, you know, which never made any sense to me at all. Um, since there are plenty of guys to go around, and most of them weren't worth the trouble anyway, why on earth would we <laughs> fight over them, you know? I just never, never saw that. But anyway, um, that was the, the, the stereotype of what women did, so that women could get together and put out something nice together and have fun together was, was real exciting in the beginning. And to be honest, you know, over 10, 15 years, that it ceased to be such an unusual and exciting thing just because there were many more opportunities. But there have never been enough opportunities to get published. I mean, I'm still struggling. You know, I have great ideas of things that I'd like to do while I can still hold a pen, and, you know, I'm not at all convinced I'll find publishers to put them out. It's a uh, comics are an odd thing. It's a tough, a tough slodge to find the right thing and the right connection. Sometimes, um, you in one of your stories, I'm trying to remember which one it was. You made a reference to a cartoonist union. Was that something that had started 
that had been happening at one point? We had a cartoonist union that lasted a very short time. There's a very funny article, a story about it by Jay Kenney in the IWW book, if you want to see pretty much the whole history of it. There were like two meetings or something, and the only thing we all agreed on was to order some, some um, Bristol board together, and it turned out to be really crummy Bristol board. You couldn't <laughs> use for anything but to line your shoes to keep warm in winter. And that was, it, it didn't last. We were actually affiliated with the IWW briefly, but, you know, a cartoonist union turns out to be like the proverbial herding cats. I mean, no, it didn't. It didn't work at all. But it was. It was a try. We tried. <laughs> everybody wanted different things, and everybody was suspicious. And and not all cartoonists are left wing. I mean, it's still hard for me to understand and believe that. But some of the real famous ones are guys that come from like military families, and uh, although they may not be that political, their their basic sympathies are not necessarily that right, that left wing. Mm-hmm. Um. With kind of going in a completely different direction uh, right now. I have a question um, about your background. It seems that family is very important to you, specifically your culture, and I wonder if it's always been kind of up front for you, that your Jewish culture. Right, right. So what do you want to know? <laughs> well, tell me, tell me the importance. So, <laughs> well, I grew up in Maryland. I was born in Virginia and grew up yeah. in Maryland, where Jews were still... Even though it was like a nice suburb, it was very much a ghetto. And even well into my, what, 40s or something, my father said something about being invited to some wedding that had Jewish people and non-Jewish people, and he was really struck by that. You know, there was like, Jews couldn't go to swimming pools, and Jews couldn't live in certain neighborhoods. I mean, there really was, it, it, you know, it was, even, there was real segregation for blacks, but then there was like a, a, a another level, like apartheid in South Africa, weren't there are different, all different levels and numbers of what you were allowed to do and who you were allowed to mingle with when mm-hmm. I was growing up. And Jews were definitely in a category that didn't get to go with everybody. So, um, you know, that's just a part of my life. I think it's like being Armenian or Iranian, or I think of it as something very real and not something I would ever try to deny, but it has it has no spiritual content for me at all. Yeah, that was something I was curious about, is just how, how much it, it takes a part of your life. Um, it also seems well. I have known. To, I mean, like, when I was growing up, you have to remember this is a lot of decades ago. The yeah. idea. I mean, there are all these movies about people that are one hundredth black and try to pass as white, but then the truth comes out. It being Jewish was almost like that. I mean, the idea that you could go on and live a life in which being Jewish didn't dog your footsteps was unimaginable. And now I actually do know people who have married non-Jews and their children have grown up as non-Jews with no guilt and no problems, you know, and then and then they marry Koreans or Chinese or blacks or whatever. I mean, we are living in a different world, which in, in my opinion is, a, is, is good. I mean, that's, it's good that people aren't so dogged by these, by ethnic categories. But my formative years, it, it wasn't something you could walk away from, and if you pretended you, you weren't, there was something dishonor. To me, there's something dishonorable, you know, about pretending you're not something that, that, that might have that component.
Well, tell me about how, how you use family to really shape who you are. I mean, you have that one story in the comics book about your grandmother. Um, and how that kind of... How do you use that history in, like, developing... Well, I mean, I still really look to my grandmother as a heroine who, uh, you know, did all these shady things as necessary to get the, the family to this country. And her, her taking my Uncle Herman that she couldn't have afforded to take him legitimately, so she wrapped him up, pretended he was a baby. I actually did the same thing to take a, a hippie child back to, to her grandmother across from San Francisco to Washington, because I sort of felt, you know, that's on the long list of debts I have to pay back. I have to do that for someone. You know, it's 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 serious. I mean, again, I think if you know people in the Armenian community or the Korean community or whatever, they're after X number of generations, it maybe doesn't weigh so heavy on you, but for at least a few generations, there, there are obligations, there are debts to be paid, there are stories to be told, and to not do that, you're not a, you're not a Manchu, you're not a Boucheren, is how the Chinese would say it, you're not, you're not living up to what all your ancestors did for your survival if you, if you just try to forget about it. Yeah. How does this kind of feed into a story like Crystal Knight? Does it oh, I think very that? much so. Yeah, I, for what I, I think very much so that Crystal Knight takes that consciousness in, into the into a future time. But I mean, it's also even more informed by stuff like that. You know, Brave New World 
biological future of, of cloning. And I, I was just thinking the other day how I, I use as a real science fiction, almost humorous thing, people selling their organs. But you know, there's people dying all across the third world because they've, they've, they've sold their organs to rich white or Chinese people. A lot of, you cannot imagine anything so exploitative that it probably hasn't, isn't happening now somewhere in the world. There's, there's something very surreal, like reading that story and so much of it is so true. It wasn't story. all true when I wrote I know. It. Oh, I know. I know. It's just over the last 15 years, like, technology has changed, and there's really been some odd societal changes to take this far-flung future. And some of it was just, like, for fun and, and jokes and just to set up a reality I could draw in, and an awful lot of it has come true, I'm afraid. You're right. When you did that story, did you plan on kind of furthering exploring the ideas in it, or did you want to just have it as like a self-contained story? Well, again, you know, the reality is Dennis Kitchen offered to publish a full-length book, and uh, had I had the opportunity to continue, I would have, but that was that was never on the table. Mm -hmm. That is a reality. I, I had some other shorter stories. Excuse me. Did you ever read Noblesse Oblige? What it's was set in a similar reality. I forget what book it was even in anymore. And there's an uh, aftershock. There's a story set in a similar. Reality. Yeah, I've I read the aftershock story. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, you know, the, there's there's this. I mean, I was I was an early adapter. Of, I read Philip K. Dick when it was like in Xerox's passed around at MIT. You know, there's there's a way in which that kind of science fiction. Of course, it isn't about science fiction. It's about commenting on the world you live in. And yeah, I'm very comfortable doing that. Should anybody offer to publish it, but that that did, you know, I haven't had that many opportunities. What do you see as the importance of because uh, um, like childbirth is a very important piece of your work. Um, so what is it that's so important about discussing that in a lot of your works? Discussing what I'm sorry, I didn't uh, catch that. childbirth, like children having oh. children, having the opportunity to have children, having the opportunity not to have to have children. Um, um, well, I mean, part of the whole hippie thing for me is is, and and I mean again being a hippie before there were hippies is, is I don't run away from and uh, even less than I run away from being Jewish I don't run away from being a woman or being a mammal or having instincts or whatever and you know I mean I was I just to be perfectly honest I've been pregnant six times and my my first child um didn't survive the the story that you're talking about was very much an interpretation of my first the birth of my first child um and I have two grown children and who have a lot of problems I won't burden you with. But, you know, it's I, it's a normal part of being a woman that, that you're obsessed with this stuff. What can I tell you? And I, I, I've i never tried to get away from it. Or maybe maybe I disproportionately am a creature of my instincts and passions and animal nature and stuff the way they used to say women are. But, but uh, it's not something I've tried to avoid. Maybe it's uh, taking it from being uh, a... To being a creature of instinct, taking it from being something that's forced upon you to being something that you own. I guess. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think, okay, I mean, since you're willing to let me model on like this, <laughs> I think I think the reason, one of the reasons that, the, like, some of the better people, the more thoughtful and educated and considerate people of my generation had their children so late is that we actually felt it, in the world that we were growing up in and trying to change that it would have been irresponsible, you know, to, to, to bring children into the world and that when we started to feel that we could or that changes had been made that make it possible to raise children in in the way we would want to, that then, then we did go ahead and have children. But I don't think it's an instinct you can just... You can't you can't mm -hmm. lightly just g give it up. You you can make a thoughtful decision that you don't want to have children of your own because that way you're contributing more to the children that are already here, to the environment, or whatever. But I don't think you just say, oh, you know, I'm busy having fun. If I don't get around to it, you know, I'd, that doesn't seem to work. I mean, you see all these extraordinary things people are doing because it didn't work. Yeah. Kind of tying with that, um, for maybe younger women listening, um, would you be able to touch on the importance of kind of having that choice in the 60s with the development of the pill? 
of the birth control oh, I can, you know I can't begin to tell you how important that choice is for younger women that might not remember I still remember my for asking my first lover when I was like 15 or 16 what would you do if I got pregnant and him saying in what he thought was humorous I, I'd get you a gun you know you got kicked out of high school you had no f future to work I mean it's you know, people are probably sitting there saying, oh, she's just making this up. No, sorry to tell you, girls, that's the way it was. I mean, teachers, if a teacher got pregnant, they were, weren't allowed to teach. I mean, it was, your life was over. Um, and the, the difference of being able to make your choices is, there would be no uh, ability for women to really, I mean, I have such strong sympathy for women in the Middle East and in India and so forth for whom these choices don't exist the unimaginable captivity that women live in that don't have any control over their fertility and what's going on now is trying to roll back Planned Parenthood and trying to roll back access to abortion it, it just makes me sick it's quite surprising just how it's such a reverse like it's I don't know I have a tough time can I ask you you're younger and probably hipper than me What's going on here? What, how are they getting away with that? I don't know. It's I'm I'm Canadian. <laughs> you can't do you that. You guys have complete. You even have medi free medical care and stuff. Still, we have right? we have health care up here. Um, not to the point of England, but we have pretty darn good too. So if a young woman is becoming sexually active, she is able to go and get birth control, and yep. she's able to get the care she yep. needs. No, okay. no, no problem at all. All that is available, and it's uh, you know I think. So it's what's going on in the U.S.? I mean, it's, okay, I mean, this is a weird thing with being a Jew. I have more sympathy for people in Nazi Germany now than I do for my, for the Tea Partiers, because they were fucking starving and having to prostitute their own children, and they were desperate for anything to be able to survive, so they fell for a, a mass of really dangerous ideas that, genocidal ideas, but what's the excuse of people in the U.S. that are going almost as far and still living pretty damn comfortable lives? What's going on with them? Um, I think I, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree that things are as comfortable in the US I think there's a lot of just from my experience as an outsider that's not maybe the best term but going driving down to the states and seeing for myself just the poverty down there um, the um, unemployment and I'm not going to get do you think it's because, that that's making them so suspicious of, of social change in minorities and stuff I like think that. I think that's one of the things I think it's also inherent to American tradition, where you have this history of, um, you know, even looking at one of the big things about the Tea Party is Federalist powers, right? And, right. you know, the Civil War, it wasn't a fight about slavery, it was a fight about federalism. One of the things my one of my sons and I talk about is how uh, some of the things that are going on now. If the South had only been allowed to secede, we might be a much the country that was left might be a much better country. That it really is some of those same places and people and everything that are dragging things in such a dreadful redneck right wing direction. It's it, a lot of it is. I mean, you know, it's not to say there isn't some northern power bases I think was it in North Dakota they're blaming their floods on Canada or something <laughs> someone was telling me it's like, so how hard is it to get to Canada now how much does it cost to buy landed immigrant status tell me about it oh uh, I don't know <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm always nice to interviewers and publishers and stuff from Canada because I think sooner or later one of us is going to need to go there. Uh, You'll meet me at the border and help me across. I, I know a fair amount of uh, of former former Americans. There's, uh, I think there's a town in the interior of British Columbia, the province I'm in, that's pretty much made out of uh, draft dodgers. <laughs> See, I think that is one, for me, and I don't think my kids are going to inherit this, but for me, the Jewish experience is still, that experience is close enough that I sort of always think of myself as a potential immigrant person that has to leave because of things going on, it's you know, which I, several, a generation or two down the road, they're not going to feel that way, but that's still always been a part of my worldview. The idea of the diaspora, the... That you might have to yeah. leave. Yeah, no fixed home. And you you, tr you yourself traveled pretty extensively. You are mentioning earlier um, going to China, living in Yugoslavia during the Tito regime. Um, why would why why the choice to go to Yugoslavia? 
during the two years? Well, I, I was traveling with a professional chess player, and at that time you could live very cheaply in Yugoslavia and play in international tournaments. And in fact, he got his grandmaster title there and became the first new American grandmaster since Bobby Fischer or something, because there were just very few opportunities for chess players at that time. But for me, the big plus was, well, A, living cheaply. And I actually did carry around the same Masonite drawing board I use now and do some comics for Guinness Kitchen while I lived in Yugoslavia. But anyways, um, I wanted to try living in a com. I had heard from chess players that Yugoslavia, although being communist, was still like just sort of a lively, jolly place. And I really wanted to live, I really did want to try living in a communist country. I am curious about the experience of a country like Yugoslavia, because it was, for folks that don't know, Tito didn't really follow the Stalinist word, so to say. Not at all. He, uh, it, was, it was great. I loved it. I loved everything about it. I mean, I mean life was a little harder than, than comfortable life here. The people we stayed with, older people that rented us a room, I remember seeing they were, they picked flowers, dried flowers, and then attached stems to them and sold them in the market to make a little extra cash. So I won't say life was easy, but there was a lot of color, a lot of music, a lot of uh, appreciation of life. And um, and for that time under Tito, the, I think our family that I stayed with was Croatian and Serbian, and that was okay. I mean, all the different conflicts that came out in the wars afterward under Tito, it really was a fairly unified and, and good-natured union. And and Russians from the Soviet Union would come to vacation there because it was there was a sort of basic jolliness that I think goes back in the culture. I mean, they love to drink and shout and dance and shoot rifles in the air. And I felt very comfortable there. But I'll tell you a story from my first... Was it that time, Yugoslavia, an earlier time? We, I actually was taking a train from Germany into Yugoslavia, and for some reason there was no water on the train, and it was very crowded, and it was very miserable. It was, and a lot of the people on the train in the third-class carriages were, were guest workers coming back from Germany and other Western European countries to visit their families in Yugoslavia. And at one point, the train finally stopped at... Um, a station that had like a trough, probably for watering horses, but all the Yugoslav workers and me, one 20-something one woman, jumped off the train and put our faces immediately in the water and threw the water on our shoulders and buried our faces in it. And, you know, I mean, I felt at home with these people. I don't feel at home all the time here. What can I tell you? Was it, like, as far as, like, um, people talk about communist regimes, and I'm not making saying this a statement, I'm just saying this as interpretations about police state and police control and what was the experience with that kind of aspect everybody would talk about everything um everything would change hands in the market i mean people wore blue jeans and ladies wore lots more makeup and nicer hair than they were doing in the u.s then when i lived then when i when i first traveled in yugoslavia much earlier than that they were still dressed in sort of more traditional peasant garb um there was no sense at all of it. There was much less sense about being a police state than there is in the U.S. now. I mean, aside from airports, which are like being in a fucking concentration camp, <laughs> just being out on the street, as far as, you know, having to have ID and everything, I think is much more oppressive in the U.S. now than it was in Yugoslavia. We overstayed our visas. We never got proper visas to live there all the time. We lived there. And the result of overstaying your visa is you went into some nice official's place and, you know, greased his palm with a couple 20s, and then you were set for another six months. It was much less oppressive as far as that stuff goes than here. And after you left Yugoslavia, moved back to the United States? Well, I never really figured out a way to make a living there. I did some comics in the mail. I visited Zagreb Film Studio, which turned out I could have been an apprentice, but it was like I had to pay them, not they would pay me. The person I was traveling with wasn't as good a traveler as me. He got sick of, you know, food tasting funny and, you know, bedrooms being cold and whatever, stuff that really doesn't bother me at all. And uh, <laughs> it really doesn't. But, I, you know, there was, there was no real future for me there. And considering what happened afterward, you know, I have to say that was a lucky fate that that happened, that I didn't try to settle down there. Yeah. Yeah. No arguments there. Um, so how from Crystal Knight, um, I think that Aftershock comic came out after Crystal Knight. But then, was that it for comics until Emma Goldman? Did you stay artistic? There were a lot of um, a lot of just two page and three pages and 
there was, I don't know, dreams and corporate crime. And Did you ever read H&M? That's another science fiction one. I forget no. what that came out in. Anyway, so every year there'd be at least something, two or three pages. That's on. And I did some stuff for a Canadian person in Ottawa that used to do, uh, I don't know what, have shows with postal art and stuff. I mean, there would always be little odds and ends coming up so I could keep drawing. But there just weren't any major publications that were asking for my work through those years. So how did the Emma And I wrote a lot. I did a lot more writing. Okay. I wrote a lot of poetry. I, you know, I, I, I found ways to fill in. I painted on the walls. But I, I, it did feel good to start drawing again. What can I say? I think the IWW, was that the first thing in a while? Okay. IWW, and there was something Trina did for um, the Secession Gallery in Austria. And there was a woman that she asked me to do work for. And there was a, a woman's traveling show in Europe I did work for. There were, there were lots of, there was always stuff to do, but never enough stuff to do. I never went more than six months without having some kind of art job, but not enough. And I also worked for about three years for um, the Center, Center for the History of the in the schools at UCLA, which was a somewhat left-wing history books for kids project that I did illustrations for. And that was a lot of fun. And that one got killed by Lynn Cheney of uh, Cheney fame. She decided it had too much feminism and Native Americans and stuff. But I drew all the Native Americans, and I had a real good time doing that. And lots of, I learned to do a lot of architecture because I got to do like Hogan's and traditional cave dwellings and stuff that I, I never concentrated on. So it's like everything I have to do then feeds in to the next thing I do. I will take this segue, make this an opportunity to tell you what I've actually decided I love best about drawing comics rather than doing art as defined by New York galleries, which is that you're, you're continually tuned into the real world. You continually have to see, you know, what does a bear really look like? Or what does a building in 1890 really look like? Or what does, you know, and, and that's the most exciting, funnest part of it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a hunter-gatherer at heart, and, and through drawing comics, I'm like constantly hunting and gathering all these bits and pieces of all aspects of the real world. And that's the real joy of it for me. Mm -hmm. I just saw this movie... Uh, cave of Forgotten Dreams, the Werner Herzog movie about oh, the, the, 3D the cave paintings. I've always loved those cave paintings, and I felt so close. I had been doing some illustrations for a fantasy writer that's a lot of people turning into animals. And when I looked at those paintings of um, of horses especially, but also of the, the bears and the deer, I mean, what I saw was not all the stuff he was talking about. I saw how they had use the same tricks I have to use of where you turn the body slightly in space so that you can use foreshortening to show the hind leg coming forward and you know I felt I'm, I mean the closest I felt to those guys it was like some CGI special effect where you know I sort of wavered and went back to the cave and was one of them that's, that's what I do for a living that's what I want to do for a living um, and a lot of what's called art nowadays is, is very very far from that mm -hmm. um, it's funny like talking to you has remind me of when I of um, very similar aesthetics like Carol Tyler about just how you like live so uh, so much through your work and through the comics work and just how it's so um, immediate well comics are always butting up against the real world I mean if you don't make a, a horse come alive in such a way that the real horses will come and, and give you prey you know you're, you've, you haven't done it people I, there is some crap that gets printed now that is pretty abstract but I mean <laughs> it's not just about what you're thinking or what you're feeling you actually have you have to make something actually come alive become real you have to actually do that magic trick I mean you think of what it is you want to do and why you want to do it but then you have to do it you have to actually conjure up reality on a flat page and that's that's the funnest part of that. What was the like with the Emma Goldman book? Um, was she someone you've been wanting to write about specifically? Well, I didn't know that much about her, but okay. every time I encountered anything about her, she always sounded real cool. And when Paul was putting together the IWW book. Um, I guess she was one of the possibilities he gave me. And I said, yes, I'll do Emma Goldman. And then I learned more about her. And then I wrote to Paul. I said, wow, what a fascinating woman. She deserves a whole book. And I don't Do you know Paul very well at all? Have you talked to him? Much? I haven't talked to him at all, but I know of him. 
he's a real special guy, mm-hmm. and he's an enthusiast, and he's a nut in his own way, even though he's a professor. And he'll just get an idea, and he won't let go of it. And and you never know what's going to do that to him. So I, apparently that line in my letter just sort of set him off, and he, he wanted there to be an Emma Goldman book, and he moved heaven and earth to, to get a deal made. He wrote the proposal, and he talked the publisher into it, and then just sort of dumped it in my lap. And he gave me the, found the references for me, and then he just dumped it in my lap and told me to get to work. And he he was involved. I think I read somewhere that he was involved in the Students for Democrat Society at some point. Yeah, he's he's an he's, old bestie from way back, yeah. and he's been doing a lot of work for the the stuff. He actually worked at taught at Brown University for decades. Retired just about a year ago. Went back to Madison. And he was just starting, to, I was just getting emails like, why did we do this? It's so cold. Why am I in Madison? And then the whole, you know, pro-union Madison Springs thing started. And it was like Paul had a complete, like he found a young girlfriend or something. A complete <laughs> change of heart. He's so happy now. This is, this is just what he wanted to be. That this is great for him. Uh, it's, it's interesting. We have our own thing happening in Canada right now where uh, the post, there's a postal strike. With the, uh, oh, okay. Tell me about it. Well, it's they're they're striking, and there's a big long debate over in Parliament uh, because the Conservative majority wants to uh, put them back to work, legislate them back to work, and the New Democrat Party, which is our kind of left leaning, who recently and the most re- recent elections really boomed in their power. They went from having like you know being the number three party to being the number two party, and they're just doing a nonstop filibuster for, I think it's 48 hours now that they've been going for. So this isn't just in one province, this is the whole country? This is the federal government, yeah. The federal government, okay. Yeah, and so the it's interesting. It'll be very interesting. What's that like having a postal strike? I know that would drive me crazy. It's, it's frustrating because I know stuff that's coming in the mail for me, but, you know. Will they hold it and take care of it and give it to you later? Exactly. Yeah, it'll it'll I'll yeah. I'll get it in time. You know, it's. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, since email and stuff, I'm not quite as neurotic. But as a person that's you know been sending my work through the mail and getting checks back and stuff all these years, I'm still very post post dependent. I, I would I I support the union, but I'd also be very upset when the <laughs> mail didn't come. With the I'm just curious about the Emma Goldman book. Like, what kind of stuff you learned from? From that book. I worked mostly from her autobiography, which is two volumes, which Paul sent me. I did a Google searches and stuff too, but her autobiography is just fascinating. And then people told me afterward that she tended to sort of romanticize her life, but that didn't bother me because here we're, I'm doing a comic book, you know, and it's and it's her life and a comic book of her life. If she wants to be like the prettiest one and the noblest one and the one that didn't sell anybody out, you know, that's fine with me. I was I was <laughs> cool with that. I you know I actually did. Not because of you, and I'm not sure why. I did think about that just recently. I mean, in common with almost all artists and actors and movie people and everything else, I'm always thinking about the project I'm working on or the next project, and I really don't think about my old projects much. But for some reason, it came to me that the Emma Goldman I created, I shouldn't confuse her with the real Emma Goldman. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you that, too. I mean, she's more like Emma Goldman, you know, Greer Garson being Madame Curie or something. That's not the... someone that is related to and drawn from the real Emma Goldman, but that's my Emma Goldman. That's, that's, should not be confused with the real historical figure. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, Sharon. Well, thank you, Robin. I've actually enjoyed this. 